This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Funding for this class is provided by Benjamin Arieh and family in loving memory of Raphael, son of Chacham Rabbi Chia. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg We are in the middle of chapter 10 Page 152 We're discussing the Tzaddik and the tzaddik, the genuine definition of the word tzaddik, is a tzaddik is someone who has no evil inclination, who, has, who is egoless. He has no attraction to anything external, superficial. His entire being has been transformed, and he's only attracted to godliness. His evil inclination is like a dead corpse, as King David says about himself. It's dead. It has, no, it has no power, it has no appeal to him. Money, power, fame, external indulgence. It means nothing to him. The only thing that matters to him and that he cares about and that he's attracted towards is godliness. Things of substance, things, things of reality. And he, he's explaining the difference within the tzaddik itself. You have two levels. You have the complete tzaddik and you have the incomplete tzaddik. He says the incomplete tzaddik still has some evil inside of him, but it's in the subconscious. It's not, it's not on a conscious level, but it's there. It's lurking. And therefore, his love for God is incomplete, and he doesn't totally despise materialism per se. He's not attracted to it. He can relate to someone who is, but for him it has no appeal. Versus the complete tzaddik is someone who is totally transformed, a core transformation. He doesn't have even a drop, a trace of ego, of evil left inside of him. And his entire being has been totally transformed. He has a complete love for Hashem, for God. And therefore, he actually despises. He's repulsed by materialism, self-indulgence. He can't relate to it. It disgusts him. And he has this powerful urge and desire, the same urge and desire that we have towards Godliness, he has that same urge and desire towards, towards I mean, the same urge that we have towards materialism, uh, he has towards godliness. Like the famous story of Rabbi Yitzhakar Bardichev, who was on Sukkot, and he was up all night, he couldn't sleep because he couldn't wait till he'll make the blessing on the Lulav and the Esrog. He's waited all year for this moment. Now the Esrog was behind a glass, uh, um, a glass cabinet, but he was so excited, he was so eager to do the mitzvah, that he, he didn't even notice the glass. He stuck his hand out to get the esrog. He cut his hand. His hand was bleeding. He didn't even notice. He was oblivious. And he took the lulav with excitement and blessed the lulav and the esrog until his gabai walks in and sees that he's bleeding. He didn't even notice. Could you imagine such a powerful attraction to a mitzvah, to do a mitzvah? It's, it's difficult for us to even, to even relate to it. But that's the life of a tzaddik, the inner life of a tzaddik. So what's the difference between the incomplete tzaddik and the complete tzaddik? And you could say it's like the difference 
in, in, in the Torah, in Judaism, we find there's a concept of purity, tahara. It's one of the six orders of the Mishnah, tahara, purity. And then there's an order called kadashim, holiness. The difference between purity and holiness. Or in the language of the Kabbalah, it says there are five levels of the soul. There's the nefesh. The nefesh is the basic level of the soul that interfaces with the body the thought, the speech, the action of a person. Then you have the ruach, the spirit, which is the emotions. It's already a deeper level within the soul. Then you have the neshama, is the mind, the brain of the soul, the intellectual capacity of the soul, comprehension. And then comes chaya. Chaya is like the mystical level of the soul. The, uh, the, uh, the life force of the soul. The willpower. And then you have yechida, which is the Jew within the soul. This is the, what we call the pintaliyid, the divine spark inside the soul. This is the yichida, the pleasure. And the difference between the incomplete tzaddik and the complete tzaddik is like the difference between the level of chaya and the level of yichida, between purity and holiness. And what that means in plain English is that the level the basic level, the level that where a person transcends his ego. Although the person reaches a level of purity, when a person rises above his ego, when a person removes his ego, and suddenly it opens up a whole new world inside of you, it opens up your subconscious, it opens up a whole universe that you weren't, you weren't even aware, because your ego... All it takes to black out the world is hold one little finger in front of your eyes and suddenly the whole world is blacked out. The same is with our egos. Our egos block our view. It's like a veil. And we don't see. When a person removes his ego, it opens up a whole universe. From within, something emerges. A whole reality. You experience reality on, 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 on a whole different dimension. But, the person who has risen above ego and who has reached the level of purity, has tapped into that mystical level of his soul, which he experiences very deeply and, and accesses his subconscious and accesses his soul. And therefore, ego and money and power and fame and indulgence loses its attraction for him because that's not reality to him. The only reality to him are soul things, are godly things. But nevertheless, this person is still defined. The mystic is still defined by ego. He is defined because he has risen and transcended the ego, but he's still defined by ego. It's like the East and the West are two sides of the same coin. It's like the recovering alcoholic. The recovering alcoholic, what's the difference between the recovering alcoholic and, and, and the alcoholic? It seems like they're 180 degrees apart. But the truth is, they have a lot in common. Because both of their lives are defined by alcohol. One by embracing it, and one by running away from it. But their life is defined by alcohol. They're both obsessed with alcohol. One by indulging in it, and one by running away from it. And that's why the recovering addict will tell you, he's still, he's still addicted. He has to run to AA meetings many times a week. His life, he's obsessed with 
with alcohol, but just in totally denying it, in being clean, in being free from it. But it still defines his life. It's really two sides of the same coin. It's so ironic that religion, spirituality, and materialism are really two sides of the same coin. The Buddhists sitting on top of the mountaintop and meditating, and the rank materialists are really two sides of the same coin. Because one has totally indulged and embraced the materialistic world, and one is obsessed with denying the materialistic world, that this world is a maya, this world is an illusion, it's not real, uh, get over yourself, see beyond the tip of your own nose, open your, open your eyes to reality, open your eyes to the universal life force within us, etc., But really, both of them are really defined by the same subject. You know, when I studied in Israel, uh, I I found it very ironic. There's a community in Jerusalem called Meir Sha'ar. I'm sure everyone heard of. The ultra-Orthodox community. I used to go there Friday night, and the irony was, that it happened to be the biggest tourist attraction. The whole purpose of this community was to create a ghetto-like existence to keep the world at bay. It turns out that this happened to be the, most, the greatest tourist attraction. Every, every, everyone and everything they were trying to keep away came flocking to watch this community, the reenactment of an 18th century community. A real live community. It was like, it was like a museum piece. So it was, just, it was just so ironic, because it's really two sides of the same coin. So the incomplete tzaddik is a Jew who's holy, a Jew who is pure. His whole being is pure. His whole life is pure. He has no attractions, no desires for anything materialistic. He is only attracted to toward godly things, toward holy things, wholesome things. It's difficult for us to relate to it, but this is a tzaddik, a person who's egoless. His life is not defined, doesn't evolve around ego. Me, myself, I. His life defines and evolves around rising above your ego, transcending your ego. And therefore he has a window to the soul. He has a window to the, to the infinite. He has a window to the subconscious. He is a, he's almost like a spiritual superman. He's in a different dimension. He lives in a different dimension than 99.9% of us, the rest of us, inhabit. Because we have struggles and we have conflicts. We have to struggle with positive and negative. There's a, we, have a he, we have heaven inside of us. We have an angel inside of us. And then we also have the opposite inside of us, pulling us in a different direction. There are parts of us that are noble. That there are parts of us that want to be noble and want to, do, want to be pure and want to do the right thing and want to lead a wholesome life. And then there are parts within us that are attracted towards the opposite. So... We have this constant inner struggle, inner conflict. The tzaddik is free of this conflict. The tzaddik is one who is, is whole. He has no attraction towards anything superficial, external, and materialistic. But nevertheless, his life is still defined by, by the ego, by escaping the ego, rising above the ego, transcending the ego. And therefore he has to run away from the world. He has to seclude himself from the world. He has to run up to the mountaintop. He has to, internally, he has to run away from the world. He can't deal with the world. Why? Because the world still 
He's still defined by it. It still has a hold on him. Subconsciously, the world still has a hold on him. And therefore, he has to rise above it, he has to escape, he has to run away from the world. Versus the complete tzaddik, who has reached the level, the fifth level of the soul, the yechida, the Jew within the soul, the pintaliyid, the divine spark, who has reached a level of holiness. What is the definition of, what is the definition of holiness? definition of holiness as the Alter Rebbe said earlier in chapter 6 is the reality that there is no other reality but God and therefore there is no conflict there are no two realities heaven, earth, body, soul material, spiritual ego, soul there is only one reality And that is the reality of God. And the same God who created the soul, that same God also created the body. And also created the ego. And therefore, there are really two sides of the same coin. There are two aspects of one reality. And each one, in their own way, is able to express the reality of Godliness. Body and soul. And to unite the body and the soul. So when a person, when a person defines himself, not by his own ego, by escaping his ego, but his definition is, one definition, one reality, not my reality, but the reality of God. If your definition is, if you're defining reality not from our human perspective, you're defining reality from God's point of view, from the inside out, from God's point of view, there is no conflict. There is no split. There is no right versus left, body, soul, heaven, earth. All of these dichotomies, all of these distinctions are only from a human point of view. But from God's point of view, from the inside out, there are no distinctions. The same God creates both dimensions and both aspects. And therefore, from God's point of view, there's an absolute unity. There is, there is no split, there is no dichotomy. So when a person defines himself from God's point of view, then there is no struggle, there is no conflict, there is no heaven, there is no earth. All there is is one reality. And you see one, you see how each one expresses the ultimate, absolute reality of God. And therefore, therefore, the complete tzaddik, this is the complete tzaddik. The complete tzaddik is someone who has absolutely no ego. He's not defined by ego, and he's not even defined by rising above the ego. There is no ego. All there is is God. The complete tzaddik is so completely aware of the truth that all there is is God. There is nothing else. And that God creates everything, including the ego, including the soul, including the body, including the soul, including heaven, including earth. Therefore, to the complete tzaddik, there is no conflict. So there isn't even a trace of ego. And therefore, since he's not defined by it, he doesn't have to run away from it. He doesn't have to escape it. He can deal with it. He can transform it. He can elevate it. He can bring heaven and earth together. He can merge body and soul. He can serve God not only with his soul, he can serve God even with his body. He can serve God with every, his entire being. All his thoughts, all his speech, all his actions. Because to him, all there is is, is God. There, there, there is no other reality. So to the complete tzaddik, this whole assumption 
that there is between the East and the West, the whole assumption of religion and mysticism, to the complete tzaddik is an erroneous assumption. The whole assumption of mysticism is that there's a conflict with the body, there's a conflict with the ego. And therefore, we have to, we have to rise above the ego and render the ego, the ego is just maya and illusion, and rise above it. Rise above human emotions, rise above the ego. Escape. To the tzaddik, this whole premise is wrong, is erroneous. To the complete tzaddik, there is no, there is only one reality, the reality of God. And therefore you can find God, you can serve God with the body and you can serve God with the soul. Equally. So the tzaddik, who doesn't even have a, a trace of evil left in him, there's not even a trace of ego, because he doesn't define himself by ego. His definition is not ego and not rising above ego. His definition is Hashem. That there's only one reality, period. And this is what a Jew expresses every day. That's why we say the Shema Yisrael twice a day. You know, people wonder, why do we say the Shema Yisrael every day, twice a day? I mean, it's so basic, it's so elementary. Hero Israel, God is our God, God is one. I mean, of course, half of the world today are monotheists, believe in one God. So what's, I mean, what's the big deal? Why do we keep on saying it? But what we're saying in the Shema Yisrael is something much deeper than that. We're not just saying that there's one God and not two gods. What we're saying is, Shema Yisrael, listen carefully, Israel. Listen, digest this, internalize this. Hashem Elokeinu. Why two names for God? What's the difference between the name Hashem, which is Yud Ke Vav Ke, and the name Elokeinu, Elokim? The name Elokim is the name with which God ex- creates the world of nature. Bereshit bara Elokim. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. So Elokim has the numerical value of Hateva, nature. This is the way God expresses himself by creating the world of nature. Yud Ke Vav Ke is the name is God's essential name. That's how God expresses Himself through the soul, spirituality, Torah, mitzvah. So you would think that Hashem and Elokeinu are two different names, are two different realities. God creates the world of nature, and then He creates the world of, of the soul, of the spiritual. So a Jew says twice a day, and you have to close your eyes, you have to concentrate, because it's counterintuitive, and you have to digest this and really internalize this idea, Shema, listen carefully. Yisrael. Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, there's only one God. Because ultimately there's only one reality. And that same God expresses Himself through the physical and through the spiritual. Mind you, the story, someone comes to a, uh, someone comes to a rabbi, he buys a jaguar, so he goes to the rabbi in the Lower East Side, his grandfather's rabbi, who okay, was an immigrant from Europe, and he says, Rabbi, I just bought myself a jaguar, what bracha do I make on a jaguar? The rabbi says, what? What's a jaguar? <laughs> goes to the reform rabbi he says rabbi I just want myself a jaguar what bracha do you make on a jaguar rabbi says what? what's a bracha <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know you, you can't be a Jew without a sense of humor <laughs> and um, because what happened is, is is when the ghetto walls came down 200 years ago in eastern Europe for the first time in Jewish history a Jew had a choice up until 200 years ago, you really had no choice. You were Muslim, or you were Christian. Or you were Jewish. Converting to Christianity was not an option. For 99.9% of Jews, even under coercion, they would rather die, be burnt at the stake. Simple Jews, tailors, cobblers, it's not an option. For a Jew to convert to Christianity and deny his, Jew- his Jewishness is simply not an option. 
But then, 200 years ago, the ghetto walls came down. And now we had a choice. Why should I be Jewish? How am I going to deal with, with modernity? So we had two responses. One response was what people call the ultra-Orthodox, who says, the hell with modernity. I'm not giving up my tradition. And I'll put up these ghetto walls, and I'll live like the Amish. I don't care about the world. I have my tradition. I'm proud of it. And I'll continue this tradition. Then the other side of the coin said, you know, the heck with tradition. You have to be modern, you have to be with it, and we have to participate in the world, and if I have to cut and compromise, and so be it. That's the other response. Now, it's, it's ironic, but those, both of these responses are really two sides of the same coin. I know if you would put these two Jews in the same room, they would never admit that they have anything in common with the truth, that they have everything in common. Why? Because the whole premise is wrong. The whole assumption, they share a common assumption. What's the common assumption? That modernity, being with it and down to earth, and being Jewish and being godly are mutually exclusive. You can't be 100% Jewish, passionate Jew, a committed Jew, without compromising one iota of your Jewishness. And at the same time, be grounded and with it and engaged in the world. This whole assumption is, an, this assumption is shared by both sides of the... And the and it, but this whole assumption is wrong. Because it's the same God who created the soul. The name Hashem is the same God who created the Lokeinu, who created the world of nature and math and science and physics. So how could there be a, an art and beauty? How could there be a conflict between one and the other? The whole assumption must be wrong. Because from God's point of view, if you look at reality from the inside looking in, looking out, from God's point of view, these are really two aspects of the same reality. And that's, that's the Jewish way. The Jewish way is that the mission of a Jew is not to escape reality. The mission of a Jew is not to become a nun or a celibate or, or to run off to a mountaintop and to escape. The mission of a Jew is not to indulge and surrender, but the mission of a Jew is to deal with reality, to elevate reality. Yes, there's beauty and we celebrate beauty, but there's modesty. Elevate the beauty, put it in the right context. Yes, we eat, but eat kosher. Elevate that experience. Everything we deal with the world, we engage with the world, but we have to elevate it. We have to transform it. We have to bring godliness into this world. We have to bring heaven down to earth, and we have to elevate earth to heaven. Transformation. And that's why the Jew is able to shuttle so easily from one world to the other. On Shabbat, the world doesn't exist. We take a trip to Shabbat Island. People, people pay thousands of dollars for Club Med vacations. Well, we have a Club Med every week right here in Manhattan. And it doesn't cost a dime. No telephone, no television, no distractions, no beepers. 26 hours, we enter paradise, a different dimension. The world doesn't exist. The external world doesn't exist. It's a time to nourish, to nurture, to celebrate yourself, your family, your community, your Jewishness. It recharges your batteries. And, and then we shuttle right back into the world, right back into Wall Street. How can a Jew shuttle so smoothly from one world? On Yom Kippur, we're like angels. We're in shul, we're dressed in white. 
We're pure angels, and the next day we're back handling back on Wall Street. This is unusual. You know, either you live a life, a certain life, you seclude yourself, you live like the Amish, you, you, you live a monkish type of existence, and you're spiritual and holy, or, or you engage in the world. But a Jew, how is a Jew able to so smoothly shuttle back and forth, seemingly from one extreme to the other? Total spirituality, the world doesn't exist at all. And then the next moment, they're back fully engaged. It seems humanly impossible. Angel, human, at the same time, simultaneously. It's like finite and infinite at the same time. How can it be finite and infinite at the same time? The answer is, you're right. From our point of view, from a human point of view, not only a human point of view, even from an angelic point of view, it is impossible. From a heavenly point of view, it's impossible. When God wanted to give the Torah to the Jewish people, the angels resisted. Anti-Semitism doesn't begin here on earth. Anti-Semitism begins in heaven. The angels do not understand the Jew. And they resisted it. And they fought Moses. They refused to let Hashem give the Torah to Moses. Because they couldn't comprehend the whole notion of what a Jew is all about. Because from an angelic point of view, infinite is infinite and finite is finite. Material is material and spiritual is spiritual. Heaven is heaven and earth is earth. And you can't mix the two. How can you bring something so holy into something so mundane, into our everyday life? They couldn't relate to it. It's only God, the essence of God, that's beyond definition and beyond description. And God is not infinite. God is not infinite and God is not finite. Both of these are human approximations, human descriptions, finite descriptions. God is neither infinite and God is neither finite. God's essence is beyond description. We can't even begin to fathom what God's essence is. Therefore, God could contain infinite and finite simultaneously. God can square the circle. Paradoxically, both at the same time. And therefore, Shema Yisrael, this is what a Jew says, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. The essence of Judaism is realizing that from God's point of view, Hashem and Elokeinu, it's all the same. Hashem Echad. There's only one reality. There's one essential reality, core reality. And that's the reality, absolute reality of God, which is neither spiritual, it's neither physical, it's neither infinite, it's neither finite. It's beyond any definition or description. And God's essence could contain two opposites. And therefore, when you connect with God's essence, you can merge heaven and earth. You can bring body and soul together. Only God can bring body and soul together. Two opposites, material and spiritual. Energy and matter. And this is the tzaddik, this is the life of the tzaddik. The tzaddik is beyond, has transcended the transcendent. He's beyond the beyond. The tzaddik is not, it's not about being infinite or being mystical or being spiritual or being pure. The tzaddik is connected with the essence of God. And when you're connected with the essence of God, then there is no ego. And therefore you can deal with the ego. You don't have to escape the ego. The ego is nothing other than a tool, a tool that can be used. The ego is a very powerful energy. A very powerful force. There's more energy in Wall Street than any synagogue I've ever been to. So the ego could be used, harnessed. So the tzaddik has totally sublimated, the tzaddik is able to completely sublimate his ego. He's able to totally turn around his ego. That his entire pleasure, his pleasure is only from godly things. There is no other reality, there is no other pleasure. 
He has the same powerful attraction that we have. That insatiable attraction that we have, a sexual insatiable attraction that we have towards materialism, he has that same insatiable attraction towards godliness. That his animal soul, his ego, desires godliness with such a passion and with such thrill and excitement and such pleasure, as in the story of Rabbi because his entire being, he has one being, one essence. He's connected, there is only one reality. So there is no conflict, there is no struggle. Not only is there no struggle, there is no conflict, because he has transcended the ego, he's transcended the struggle, he has totally transformed a core transformation that the negative has actually turned into positive. The ego has actually turned into a powerful force for good. Because there is no split, there is no dichotomy. He has risen above that whole assumption that there is a conflict. There is no conflict. This is the level of the tzaddik. And that's why the tzaddik is the ultimate Jew. The tzaddik really, the inner life of the tzaddik is really what the essence of every Jew is really all about, deep down. Because for the tzaddik, what motivates the tzaddik is a sense of shlichut, a sense of mission. What can I do? What can I do for God? Religion and mysticism is, what can God do for me? Lord, get me high. It's about me. How can God serve me? I'll have a mind-blowing experience, a powerful experience, expand my consciousness. It's all about me. Spirituality could be the ultimate ego trip. The complete tzaddik, his focus, his goal is not me. What does God need me for? What can I do? So he is the one who's sacrificing himself in the true sense of the word, self-sacrifice. People call self-sacrifice, it's not real self-sacrifice. When you're sacrificing something material for something spiritual, that's not really self-sacrifice because it's really, you realize that your real self is spiritual and not, and not ego. The real self-sacrifice is when you sacrifice your spiritual advantage for, for the sake of fulfilling what God wants, fulfilling my mission, my purpose. For example, the real tzaddik, like the real Jewish leaders, the genuine Jewish leaders, the Moses of the generation. Moses refused to be a leader. Yet God had to wrestle with him for seven days. And then God just forced him. Why did he refuse to become a leader? Because for Moshe, that's the ultimate sacrifice. Moshe was in the desert, meditating. He was, he was at peace with God. He was one with God. And here God is telling him, become a Jewish leader. Are you kidding? <laughs> Deal with, with all the Jewish mishagas and the fights and the simple people. And the... For Moshe, this is the ultimate sacrifice. He needs it. He needs it like a hole in his head. What does he get from it? Zero. He doesn't get it. He has to sacrifice his spiritual tranquility, his, spiritual, uh, his own spiritual advancement for the sake of fulfilling his mission. God says, this is your mission. This is your purpose. This is what I need you. This is the ultimate selfless act. This is true self-sacrifice, where he's sacrificing his own spiritual self for the sake of, of the Jewish people. And that's why he was chosen to be the Jewish leader, because it's the ultimate supreme selfless act. And the same is true with all the Jewish leaders, down the line. The Baal Shem Tev for a year, Baal Shem Tev, the founder of the Hasidic movement, revealed himself at the age of 36. At the age of 35, his teacher, 
told him that you have to reveal himself. And he refused. For a year, he refused to reveal himself. Until he was forced. Heaven wrestled him, muscled him into becoming the the Jewish leader, the founder of the Hasidic movement. And the same repeated itself with the Rebbe. The Lubavitcher Rebbe refused for a year. He refused to become leader. A genuine Jewish leader doesn't need it and doesn't want it. But But it's the ultimate supreme selfless act. And this is the ultimate that a Jew can reach, the ultimate level that a Jew can reach is when a Jew wakes up every morning and asks himself this question. What can I do for God? What's my mission? What's my purpose? How can I help another Jew? Not just live for yourself. Spirituality is living for yourself. My own advancement, my own development, my own to deepen my, my, myself and deepen my awareness. But it's all about myself. The moment you ask yourself the question, what does God need from me? How can I help another person? Forget about yourself for a second. That's when you're expressing that pintaliyid. You're expressing the ultimate Jew within the Jew. The complete tzaddik within each and every one of us. That doesn't live for myself. But the whole purpose is that there's only one reality. The reality of Hashem. What can I do for that? And that's why the Alter Rebbe is spending so much time in this chapter explaining to us. It's important for us to realize and to understand what makes the tzaddik tick, what motivates him. Even though we can never hope or dream to be on this level, until Mashiach comes, experientially, but we could live on this level practically. We can live on this level by living with a sense of mission and a sense of purpose. And living not just for myself, but also living for the sake of a fellow Jew. Every day of my life, we ask ourselves, what did I do today to help another Jew? What did I do today to fulfill my mission and my purpose? Why does God need me? I'm his ambassador. I'm his emissary. What can I do? What have I accomplished today? Have I brought a little godliness into this world? Have I brought a little light into this world? Have I elevated this world a little? Have I transformed this world a little? Have I brought a little joy into this world? So even though experientially we can't live on this level where there is no ego and there's been a core transformation, I mean, let's not delude ourselves, let's not kid ourselves. Our egos are alive and healthy and vibrant, and, but practically we could live on this level. And by connecting to the complete tzaddik, by realizing that there are such people in this world, there are Jews who are the one or two in every generation, the Moses of every generation. There is that Jew who his entire life is motivated. He's the complete tzaddik. His entire being is so permeated with the reality that there is no other reality but God. And, and that's what defines him. And therefore, he has the ability to go back and to harness the ego. It's like the famous story in the Talmud. The Talmud says that there were four rabbis who decided to experience the Kabbalah, to enter into the paradise, into the secret esoteric uh, garden of the Torah. Rabbi Akiva, uh, Ben Azai, Ben Zoma, and um, Elisha Ben Avuya. Four entered into, delved into the secrets of Kabbalah together, collectively. They went very deep into the Kabbalah and they had mystical experiences, very profound, life-shattering mystical experiences, life-altering mystical experiences. What was the end result? 
Ben Azay died. Ben Zoyma went mad. Elisha Ben Avoya turned into a heretic. Rabbi Kiva was the only one who entered in peace and he left in peace. He came out whole from the experience. And he went back to his function as a leading rabbi, fundraiser, uh, leading the Jewish community, leading his yeshiva's academy, raising money for his, for his yeshiva, and being the, the Jewish leader. He did not turn to a heretic, did not die, he didn't go nuts. And he remained Rabbi Akiva, wiser, richer, more experienced. But he came back, came back to his, his good old self. He re-entered. That's one of the biggest dangers of Kabbalah. If you're not ready for Kabbalah, you can go into outer space and you can get marooned in outer space. The biggest challenge is to be able to re-enter, to come back to reality. Wiser from that experience. Anyone that's been in outer space and sees the world from that point of view, when they come back, it has to change them. It has to affect them. They'll never look at this world the same ever again. And that's, that's what the mystical experience should be. You should have that peak experience, but then you come back to reality and it enriches you, but you come back humbly. The others couldn't re-enter. One just expired, his soul expired. He had such an intense experience, his soul expired. The other one just couldn't come back to the conventions of society. He just went mad. What society called mad. Maybe he was sane and we were all mad, but he couldn't fit in into, into the conventional society. And the third one just became a heretic. He couldn't go back to mitzvot and obligations and disciplines and structure. And he became a heretic. As the origins of the Nazi party, Lahavdolahavdolahs, was actually very mystical. But it's mysticism gone bad. Because mysticism taken to an extreme without any grounding could lead you to moral relativism and could lead you to the, very, to the dark side. It's, it's, a very, it's, a, it's a very dangerous, could be a very dangerous experience if you're not truly grounded. <coughs> So the question is, why is it Rabbi Akiva was the only one who entered in peace and left in peace? And why does the Talmud say Rabbi Akiva was the only one who entered in peace? They all entered in peace. When they went into the experience, they were all righteous, they were Talmudic rabbis, they were saints, they were great. The difference is how they left at the exit. But the rabbis say Rabbi Akiva was the only one who entered in peace and he left in peace. Because Rabbi Akiva entered differently. Because his entrance was different, that's why he was able to leave intact. Because for them, mysticism was an end in itself. Spirituality, mysticism. And therefore, they couldn't shuttle back and forth from that peak experience and then to go back to a dreary, drab, daily life. To go back into that structure, the soul refused. So one soul just escaped, another soul just couldn't make peace and could go back to a, a drab, structured life, and the third one just stopped believing. Rabbi Akiva was able to shuttle from that peak experience back to the ordinary. Why? Because again, Rabbi Akiva entered in peace. What was his purpose of going into this deep mystical experience? It wasn't an end in itself. It was for the purpose of serving God. The same God who created the soul and created the infinite, and expresses himself in an infinite way, and, and gives us all these peak experiences and powerful spiritual experiences, and creates heaven, and angelic realities, heavenly realities, mind-boggling, higher levels of consciousness. 
The same God also created the physical one. And the purpose is that we should spiritualize the physical world. We should go back to our daily lives, ordinary lives, and elevate, bring a little light in, in, into the structure of our daily lives. So Rabbi Kiva was truly beyond the ego. Their whole purpose was to escape the ego. Once you escape the ego, how can I go back to the ego? When I've just experienced my peak experience, I've risen above the ego, I can only look down with disdain at ego and the whole world of the ego, the whole ego construct. I can't go back. But Rabbi Kiva was worshipping God. He wasn't worshipping. The point wasn't to transcend the ego. It was only one reality, the reality of God. And therefore I can find God in the peak experience. And I can find God giving a penny, earning money, and giving a penny to tzedakah, and helping a poor person physically. I can find God in my daily life, and I can find God in peak experiences, high levels of consciousness. I can shuttle smoothly from one world to the other, because there's only one reality. So Rabbi Kiva was like the complete tzaddik. There was absolutely no ego, no trace of ego. He didn't have to escape his ego. Ego is just a tool for him. He can harness and utilize. He doesn't have to run away from it. He can deal with it. He was able to merge heaven and earth, transcending the ego and going back to the ego, and shuttling back and forth and back and forth, and each one enhancing the other. This is Rabbi Akiva. This is the ultimate. This is the epitome of a Jew. And that's our ideal, the complete tzaddik, the perfect Jew. Because even though we can't be Rabbi Akiva, and we can't be Moses, but practically we could live that type of life. And we ask ourselves the question, what's my shlichut, what's my mission? I'm an emissary of God, and what's my purpose? Why did my soul come down into this world? A world with a veil, this dark world, this material world. What does God want from me? It's like the famous story with the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe was in prison for teaching the Tanya, for publicizing the Tanya, for teaching the secrets of the Torah and making it accessible. And he wrote 53 chapters with the, and he was in prison also 53 days. Every day, every, a chapter a day. And while he was in prison, the Minister of Education came to visit him. And he realized that he's a very, very wise man, and he spoke to him, he's very impressed with him. And he realized that he's a spiritual giant. And being an educated person, he enjoyed his conversation with him, and he was later on very helpful in helping release the Alter Rebbe. Because he spoke to the Tsar, and he told him what an impressive person he is, and all the stories he heard about him, that he's a counter-revolutionary, it's, it's, it's all uh, liable, and you know the, he's a special person. And so he asked Alter Rebbe, he says, you know, there's one question I always had in the Bible. Maybe you can answer the question. In the beginning of the Torah, the Torah says that when Adam sinned and he ate from the tree, God called out to him and he says, Ayeka, where are you? So what do you mean God asked Adam, where are you? God doesn't know where you God didn't know where he was. God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. What do you mean God asked him? So the Alter Rebbe says, well, don't you know what Rashi, the great commentary, says? Explain how he explains this? Yeah, I'm, I know what he says. He says that God was trying to enter into conversation. He didn't want to overwhelm him, catch him by surprise. He started a conversation, but it doesn't satisfy him. The Bible says, he called to Adam, he says, where are you? What do you mean, where are you? So the Alter Rebbe looks at him and he says, do you believe that the Torah is eternal? He says, yes. 
that the Torah speaks to each and every human being? He says, yes. He says, so this is the question that God is asking every human being. Take, for example, if a person is 54 years old, I think he said the exact years of this person, whatever, I forget the year. His age. The person is 54 years old. So God asks, Ayeka, where are you? What have you accomplished in your lifetime? Did you really matter? Did you really make a difference? Did you, did you do anything in your life that really makes a difference? He was so overwhelmed. He was blown away by this answer because it really had the ring of truth to it. He slaps the Alter Rebbe in the back and he says, Bravo! That's a brilliant answer. And later on, he was instrumental in freeing him. The Alter Rebbe later told the story. How do we know the story? He told the story and he said, when he gave this answer, he actually saved his own life. He says, because the mystical experiences that he was having in prison, he never had it in his entire life. The fact that he merited to sit in prison, that he was ready to sacrifice his life. He could have been sentenced to death. He was ready to sacrifice his life for the sake of the teachings of the deepest secrets of the Torah. He experienced the soul of the Baal Shem Tov came to visit him, the soul of Rabbi Dov Ber's teacher. He had such mystical experiences, he was flying high. And he says he was, he was at a point where he was in danger of his soul expiring. He was in such ecstasy. He had such experiences of pleasure that his soul was ready to escape his body. But when he answered this minister, and he said that the Torah is asking each and every human being, Ayeka, where are you? This this saved my life. Because I asked myself the same question. Ayeka, what does God need me for? God doesn't need another angel. He doesn't need my soul to expire in ecstasy. That that would be fun for me, but it's no fun for God. What, What does God need me? God needs me in this world. I have a mission. I have something I have to accomplish. I'm his ambassador. I'm his emissary. And when he said that word, Ayaka, he, he grabbed hold of himself and he brought himself back down to reality. Re-entered into reality. So, this is, this is the ultimate Jew. And this is the question that each and every one of us has to ask ourselves. Am I fulfilling my purpose in life? Am I fulfilling my mission in life? And what am I doing, not just for myself, what am I doing to help another person? And that's the purest expression of the Jew inside of us. Okay, let's go inside. The incomplete Zadik is he who does not hate the Sitra Akra, the spiritual Klippo, with an absolute hatred. Therefore, he also does not find evil, physical desires and pleasures, absolutely repugnant. As long as his hatred and abhorrence of evil are not absolute, Perforce, he must have retained some vestige of love and pleasure towards it. The filthy garments in which the animal soul has been clothed, meaning as explained above the evil inclination and the lusting after worldly pleasures, have obviously not been completely shed from it. Therefore, too, the evil of the animal soul has not actually been converted to good, since it still has some hold on the filthy garments, the desire for pleasure in which the animal soul had previously closed and expressed itself, except that this vestige of evil is imperceptible and cannot express itself in evil desires, because the evil is nullified by reason of its minuteness and is accounted as nothing. The overwhelming preponderance of good prevents the evil from being sensed and from finding expression. Indeed, he is therefore called Tzadik Rala, which means not only a Tzadik who knows evil, but also a Tzadik whose evil is subjugated and surrendered to him. 
to the good within him. Such a tzaddik is identified with the good, since he is overwhelmingly good. Perforce, then, the fact that he retains some evil indicates that his love of God is also not complete. For a complete love of God would have converted all the evil within him to, to good. He is therefore called an incomplete tzaddik. For, as explained above, the terms complete and incomplete denote the tzaddik's level of love for God, and the terms who knows only good and who knows evil denote the degree of his eradication and transformation of evil. Now this level, that of the incomplete tzaddik who knows evil, is subdivided into myriads of levels consisting of varying degrees the quality of the minute remaining evil deriving from any one of the four el evil elements of which the animal soul is composed. He explained earlier that just like the four basic elements in this world, there's gas, wind, there's um, fire, energy, there's earth, and there's liquid. These are the basic four elements. So too, on a spiritual level, there are four basic elements within our soul. There are people who are into pleasure, like water. There are people who are like fire. They have superiority complexes, like arrogant temper, type, type A personalities. Yeah, people are very meek and uh, too humble, meek, uh, lack of self-confidence or depressed, slow-moving, that's, that's an expression of earth, like very heavy. And, and then there, there are people who are like wind. And, uh, you know, so you have different, different expressions of ego. Every personality and character has their challenges that they have to deal with, their issues that they have to deal with. So the, the incomplete tzaddik still has something, a trace of these in his soul, in his subconscious. It's overwhelmed by the good that he doesn't feel it. As far as he's concerned, internally he, has no, he doesn't feel it, it's, its existence. But it's there. How do we know it's there? Because his love to God is incomplete and he doesn't despise evil 100%. So it's still there. He can relate to it. It's, it he can connect with it, but he can relate to it because it's still there on some level. And then... You can skip to the middle of 154, the subdivision. The subdivision. Also takes into account the degree to which the remaining evil is nullified in the good because of its minuteness. Whether in 60 times as much good, for example, or in 8,000 or 10,000 or so on. So within the incomplete tzaddik, he can have many, many different levels. He can go from strength to strength. He can start out where it's like 1 in 60. And then, and then it becomes one in a thousand, and then, and then one in ten thousand. It becomes so minute. The evil that's left in him, the, spark, the trace of evil or ego, is so minute that it just becomes less and less, but it's still there. These various sub-levels in the ranks of incomplete sadikam are the levels of the numerous sadikam found in all generations all of whom belong to the category of the incomplete tzaddik. As we find in the Gemara, 18,000 tzaddikim stand before the Holy One, blessed be he. Thus, though many attain the level of tzaddik, they are in fact incomplete tzaddikim. So the Talmud says that throughout all the generations there are only 18,000 tzaddikim. That means if you divide it amongst the generations, it's one or two in every generation. So even the incomplete tzaddik is a rare phenomenon. A person who's so good, a person who's egoless, a person who, who has a window to his soul, who's in touch with his, you know, is in touch with, 
with godliness. This is a person, it's a rare person, a person who has no evil inclination. I heard that there were 36 hidden, hidden tzaddikim. Yes, there are hidden tzaddikim. Right, right. But here he's discussing the, um, he says one or two in every generation, he's discussing the revealed tzaddik. Yes, it's true. Traditionally, the 36 hidden tzaddikim in every generation, and they sustain the world. Sometimes they could be so hidden, they themselves don't, don't realize that they're hidden, that they're a tzaddik. But here he's talking about the leaders of the generation, uh, like the, the Talmudic rabbis, the prophets, they, they were of a different caliber. They were in a different level, a different dimension of being, of existence. Their reality was not our reality. Our reality is the ego reality. Their rea- they, they totally transcended their ego. They, they, were, they opened themselves up to a whole different dimension of reality. They were in touch with, with, with godliness. And therefore, materialism held no attraction to them. They weren't even attracted to anything materialistic. So this is obviously a tzaddik, is, is, it's, it's, a, it's a saintly being. It's a different type of being. I heard a teacher say that um, this rabbi who wrote the books, Shnazalman, that he didn't, for like 20 years, he didn't even put his name on the writing. Like he yes. wasn't looking for any yes. ego gratification for the presentation of it in the world. Yes. Yes. They practically had to force him to publish it. Yes, he was forced actually to publish it. There were circumstances that forced him to publish it. Actually, we, uh, we went over all the traditions. You can go online, lessonsintanya.com, um, on this section of the Tanya. I believe in the second, the second lesson, we discuss all these, uh, these stories and the traditions about, about the Tanya. And it's, 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 it's fascinating. Uh, material about the background, how long the Tanya took, and how, how it was written, and how it was published, and how it came about. Uh, exactly. It was totally if anonymous. You're saying, right. If you're saying that, is it okay? Yes, that please. If you're saying that um, we, you're suggesting none of us is ever going to reach this level, you know, so comes. Try, you know, like in Christianity, they hold up what's-his-name, and they say, you know, this is an example of what a human being can be. And in Judaism, we say, you know, this is what a tzaddik is. You know, eat your heart out, because you're never going to be there. No, no, no. Firstly, when Mashiach I mean, will like, come... I mean, like, what's the purpose of right. talking about it? Right. Mashiach will come, will all be there. Because deep down, we have a tzaddik inside of us. We connect to the tzaddik, because when you see the tzaddik, you really see yourself. But we are not in control to access our subconscious. I mean, God created us that way. It's due to no fault of our own. That's just the way God created us. We are limited. And as much as we study and as disciplined as we are and as hard as we try, we have egos. Our egos are very healthy and alive and well, And unless a person deludes himself. Um, and it's not within our power to totally transform to create a core change on the subconscious level that we're not even tempted to do something wrong. Will we lose any temptation to do something wrong? We can live a disciplined life and lead a wholesome life and do everything that's right for 10, 20, 30, our entire lifetime. But the temptation will always remain. We still have healthy egos. That's the way God created us. Later on in Tanya, he'll explain why did God create us that way? Why did God create us to uh, suffer from an eternal struggle? But that's the reality. But it's important for us to know about the tzaddik because that's what we should aspire to. Because there are moments, at least there could be moments, that we can live some of this inner life of the tzaddik. When we pray on a holiday, we can get a taste of the ultimate, of the ideal, where not only you're doing the right thing, you're not even tempted to do anything wrong. Where you're tempted to do the right thing. 
where you can you can an, anesthetize your animals or your ego that it goes to sleep for a while, lets you alone for a while, and then all you feel is your godly soul. So the reason he's uh, discussing the tzaddik is because this is our ideal. And you can tell a society by what they aspire to. The fact that we aspire to the tzaddik. And this is our hero. Our hero is not the basketball player. or the Our hero is the tzaddik. Why is this the hero of a Jewish society? Because this tells us about the society, who we are. That we aspire to holiness. We aspire to purity. This is, this is our ultimate, ultimate. And even though, like we said, even though you can't, you can't achieve it till Mashiach comes experientially, but at least we can live our lives accordingly. Every one of us has the ability to live our life with a sense of mission. We can live our life that way, practically. The whole point of all of it is to, you know, but, a love of God and a love of yes. a man, fellow man. Yes, so absolutely. if you do, you know, absolutely. if you keep Shabbos and you put on tefillin and you do all this other stuff, but you don't have love of your fellow man and love of God, like that's the point of all that other stuff. 100%. So, I don't know. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. You learn in Tanya, that's what you learn in Tanya, that a Jew is a Jew is a Jew, and you all have a Jewish soul. Now, it doesn't mean that everything a Jew does is Judaism. Loving a Jew doesn't mean that I love everything a Jew does. That's a distinction we have to be able to make. Uh, loving a Jew doesn't mean that loving a Jew because we all have the same neshama, and every Jew is absolutely connected. The simplest Jew is just as connected as the greatest rabbi, mystic, and scholar. What makes us Jewish is that we have something divine. We're born with it. It's not human. It's not acquired. You know, you can learn in yeshiva for 20 years, 30 years. You won't become one iota more Jewish than you are the moment you're born. You can learn to appreciate it more. You can learn to uh, tap into it more. But you you don't become one iota more Jewish. Every Jew is 1,000% Jewish the moment they're born. It's inherent. You have a Jewish neshama, you're born a Jew, your mother's Jewish, you convert halachically, you're 100% Jewish. The problem that the discussion we have is not against Jews, it's, it's the idea of all labels, to us all labels, Orthodox, Reform, Conservative, are just divisive and are just misleading and misguided because the idea that, that we can compromise, you know, if a doctor, if you came to a doctor and he says, Chop off your pinky. It's just a pinky. You can live without it. What's the big deal? You would fire him. What kind of doctor is this? What do you mean chop off a pinky? My pinky you're chopping off? I'm a whole person. I don't chop off pinkies. I'm not 99.9%. You know what you call someone who's 99% when the body is functioning 99%? We call it dead. Because when the body is so infinitely complex that even when something goes wrong, 99.9% of the body is still working. But if, if 1% is not working, the person is no longer part of the living. A person doesn't compromise. A healthy person doesn't compromise. You want 100% health. When was the last time someone told you, I can live with, I can live with compromise? I can live. So when we have a problem with when someone comes and sanctifies compromise, and someone says, says it's okay to slice off a finger here, slice off a pinky there, Instead of telling a person, listen, you can't change overnight. Do one mitzvah. It's 100% true. You want to be 100% healthy. But do one mitzvah. Start with one mitzvah at a time. You're not being hypocritical. Light the Shabbat candles. How can I light the Shabbat candles if I'm going to go, go drive to a non-kosher, of course, Chinese restaurant on Shabbos? I'm being hypocritical. I might as well, uh, what, what am I doing a mitzvah? I'm lighting a candle, and here I'm driving on Shabbos and eating a kosher. No, we tell a person, listen. 
there's 613 mitzvahs. No one is telling you you don't have to keep Shabbos. And no one is telling you that just lighting a Shabbos candle, that's all you have to do. But you tell the person, this is education. You do one mitzvah at a time. You can't. You can't jump onto a roof, no matter how, how dedicated you are. You can jump off a roof, but you can't jump onto a roof. We're limited. You have to walk one step at a time. It's like a baby. You have to baby feed, and then you have to grow stronger. You can't run the marathon. Just because, just because our grandparents, our ancestors ran the Jewish marathon, we're not capable. We haven't, we haven't, we haven't run in decades. We're, not, we're out of shape. So it takes time. You have to strengthen yourself, and you have to practice, and you have to crawl, and you have to walk, and then you have to run. But, but you're telling them the truth. You're not telling them that you don't want to become the marathon runner. No, one day you will be a marathon runner. One day you will get there. But it's a process. So the problem we have is, God forbid, not with any Jew. God forbid. To us, every Jew is precious, and a Jew is a Jew is a Jew, and every Jew has an Hashem, and the Jew is just connected. We're all connected. We're all the same. There's absolutely no difference. It's the labels. When a person says, I am this, and this is good enough for me. I don't have to do more. It's okay for me to cut, compromise. That, that, that's not and Or even the label of orthodoxy, we can't accept. Because what kind of label is it? It's limiting. These are artificial, divisive. What makes us Jewish is within. It's like anything organic. Something that's real, you want to grow one step at a time. Every day of your life, you want to deepen. You want to... Why label? Why limit yourself? All these labels were invented in Eastern Europe, 200 years old. Judaism did not, was not created in the shtetl. Judaism is not 200 years old. It's 3,800 years old. At Mount Sinai, there were no Orthodox, there were no Reformed, there were no Conservative. I've never seen a conservative, a conservative uh, Torah. There's only one Torah, one Jew, one God. If Moses were here today, which congregation would he join? <laughs> he wouldn't know what you're talking about. <laughs> there's one Jew, there's one Torah, there's one God. What do you mean? Conservative, reform, orthodox, ultra-orthodox, conservative. Well, it's nonsense. Conservative, I've never heard that one. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. And never judge a book by its cover. You can have a Jew in Iowa who's doing one mitzvah. And you can have a Jew in Jerusalem who's doing 612. But the Jew in Jerusalem yesterday did 613. The Jew in Iowa yesterday did zero. Who's more connected? Who's more in touch with their Jewishness? The Jew in Iowa. He's growing. He's moving forward. So never judge a book by its cover. Just because a person's external has the look, that doesn't mean that they're in touch or they're connected or they're alive. They're just going through the motions. They're stagnating. It's not alive. It's, it's, it's conforming. They just grew up that way and... How many people, let's face it, how many people have the courage to be nonconformists and to rebel? So they just go through the mud. They're not into it. It's not real. And the Jew who's doing one mitzvah, lit the Shabbos candle for the first time in her life, put on the tefillin for the first time in his life, he's like connecting. And it's growing. And you know what? Mitzvah is very addictive. You do one mitzvah, you want to do another mitzvah. There's no, there's no mitzvah anonymous. <laughs> there's no cure for this addiction. You want to do one, you get hooked, you get connected, you want to do more... So it's that, that's the Chabad, that's the whole Chabad approach, the whole Hasidic approach. The Jews are Jews, the Jews are all connected. What, what, what we can't make peace with is all these labels and these limitations. And You can compromise this, and you can cut here, and you can do this. You have to tell the Jew the truth. It's an organic whole. You have to be, you're going to be 100% vibrantly healthy. We're not giving up on a pinky. But you have to start one step at a time. If a person is critically ill... You have to start with the tiniest movement in health could ultimately bring a person to total recovery because you're tapping into the healthy part within the person. You're not telling a person, you're not being pathological. You're being holistic. You're telling them, listen, deep down you're healthy. Tap into that health. If you tap into that health, by doing a drop of health, ultimately that can take over the whole organism and you'll become 100% vibrantly healthy. And there are people who holistically have cured themselves from the worst illnesses. 
So even if you meet a Jew who's so spiritually ill, who's consciously disconnected and doesn't identify as a Jew, and you don't see any life, you don't see any health, you don't see any spiritual connection, don't give up. With love and with you know, tap into that to that health inside, to that Jewish soul inside. Let him do one tiny mitzvah, and before you know it, the Jew can flourish. You'll see it before your eyes the soul flourishes and opens up, and can be a total transformation. But 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 you're telling the truth. This is the ideal. This is the aspiration. Let's do one baby step at a time. But you can't sanctify the compromise. The moment you tell a person that it's only 99% true and you can cut off a pinky, fire that doctor. It's dangerous. It's a lie. You, you would sue him. What kind of doctor is this? How can you tell a person, well, it's not 100%, it's, it, this is not real, and this is not for real, and this is not relevant, and this is... You know, as long as you have the main organs, you have the heart, well, what do you need a pinky? <laughs> Live without a pinky. I mean, it, it, it's... People don't realize how absurd it sounds, how ridiculous it is. When you, when you realize what, 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 what's at stake here, it's not just the body, you're talking about the soul. So you love every Jew, and you love them with your whole heart and your whole soul. But um, if we're speaking about uh, an ideology, not every ideology could a Jew accept. A Jew can't accept sanctifying compromise. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.